Hey, we're back. <laughs> oh, man. We've got to hide over here. That was epic fail. So we're here for the second time. Um, apparently, my computer's falling apart. It doesn't love me anymore. So that's just how it's going to be. So anyway, thanks for jumping on here. Let's see if we got some people coming on. So not yet. They all ran away. Hey, while well, we're jumping in, we are going to go through questions you guys posed from last Sunday. We talked about doubts and uh, preached a message on how do we know God is real in the midst of all of this knowledge and intellect and things in our society. Here, let's get that out of the way. Okay. How, do we, how do we know God's real? And so we're going to kind of answer the questions you guys sent in. We have over 30 questions posed by you guys, uh, which is absolutely incredible. So thanks for sending those in. And so we're going to dive into, yay, there we go. We got people. Here, tell them hi. I do. I know, but like out loud, so I know they're jumping on. Uh, all right, so I'm excited. Yeah. What's up, Kristen? Virginia and Mitch. What you, Mitch? Dude, hey, ja dude, I'm glad James is back. Man, I love you guys. So thanks for hanging in there. Man, apparently my uh, computer is just terrible, so you can pray for Pastor. So, um, But thanks for jumping in with all the questions. And so really heartfelt questions. There's a few that are really funny. Um, is water wet? Great question. Um, but anyway, uh, we talked about four practices on Sunday. Um, talk about your doubts, I want you guys to bring them up. And so you guys ask these great questions. And so I'm going to do my best to answer the questions, get you guys thinking some more, give you some really Bible truth, and um, hopefully have a great conversation. So feel free to jump in, ask questions. If you're watching later, just hashtag replay. Um, but hopefully, just like God speaking to your faith, uh, I'll tell you, a little faith goes a long way. I don't have all the answers. Diane has the gift of faith. That's right. She's it is like, what it is. boom. <laughs> I'm the skeptic, so you're hearing from one skeptic to another. I've learned a lot on the way. I'm not an expert, not a scientist, and so I'm kind of re-talking a bit over what I said earlier in the video before it collapsed, but um, here's kind of the outline. We're going to talk about some lifestyle stuff, um, LGBTQ, uh, and what it looks like in Christianity. There's a lot of questions on that, questions on leadership. We had questions on a lot of salvation questions, like how you know for sure Jesus died for your sins, how you know you're going to heaven. We'll dive into that. Had questions on death. Uh, which I'm going to hold off till next week because we actually um, are going to do a message this Sunday about death, which is it's not meant to be negative, but the reality is we all have that moment in time appointed. And so what's that look like for us and how do we live differently because of it? Uh, the problem of evil, uh, why do bad things happen to good people, is actually another question that we are preaching on during this series. So I'm going to table some of those. A lot of questions on baptism, surprisingly. Um, I mean, I didn't know there was so much interest around that. And so we're going to be answering a lot of questions in depth on that. Um, question about God's will. What should I do with my life? Uh, how do I know this is from God? A question of healing, um, just kind of overcoming pain in the past. Had a couple Bible questions. And then what happened to the dinosaurs posed by That's right. the one and only? Any excuse to use an emoji. Yeah, the dinosaur emoji is on my question. So uh, but we'll talk about like science and reason and then like old earth, young earth, kind of stuff like that. So and thanks for jumping back in here. First question was already on there. Is cereal soup? I already answered no. Sorry. <laughs> What's the question? Is cereal soup. Oh, is cereal soup. Mm. I don't know. I'll leave that to Diane. She's got more faith. <laughs> but thank you, Cody. Wonderful <laughs> question. Um, so lifestyle, leadership, this kind of the heading, there's some questions under that. So somebody posed this question, sent it in and said, can you be LGBTQ and a Christian? Also, how do we as Christians deal with the issue? 
And so I was answering this when the things fell apart earlier. So I answered some other questions. Can you be a porn addict and be a Christian? Uh, can you be an alcoholic and be a Christian? Can you have an extramarital affair and be a Christian? Can you be polygamist? By the way, there's a lot of polygamists in the Old Testament. I mean, That's Solomon, true. I don't know that dude. A lot of wives. Walking STD, okay? Oh, yeah. <laughs> we went there. Um, but like, can you, can you have sex for marriage and be a Christian? And so uh, the answer is yes. Um, you can live that lifestyle. Um, you can choose to be that person. Um, now, there's a lot that's obviously wrong about that. Um, Bible's pretty clear, 100% clear, uh, that that's not the lifestyle God has for you, but you can know Jesus and live in that lifestyle. And so how do we deal with that? Like, how do you deal with so many people around us? It's so acceptable in our culture. There's so many people um, that are struggling or like living a different lifestyle of sexuality. And so Romans 2 um, says pretty clearly, and I'm just going to read it to you. It's Romans 2, 1 through 4, if you're taking notes. Nerd alert, take notes, close your seat in heaven. <laughs> but Romans 2, 1 through 4 says, You therefore have no excuse. Uh, you pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Ouch. Because you pass judgment to do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. And so when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the richness, the richness of kindness, the forbearance? the putting up with, the patience, not really like God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. And so God is obviously tolerating what people do against him. He tolerates our sins. Um, he loved us enough to die on the cross and forgive our sins. And he sees, a, he sees everything. And he still loves us and puts up with us, per se. That's word forbearance means he's patient towards us. And what this verse really, I love in different translations, says it's the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance. Like it's only by his grace that he even endured the sins they're walking through. And so I would just say like real practically, how to make it personal. Like when you're working with somebody that um, maybe something different you disagree with, or maybe you're in that camp, uh, but how do you work with somebody? How do we care for people as a church that are a different lifestyle when it comes to sexuality um, or identity? So I'd say make it personal. Um, you know, we got to recognize that we sin every day. Um, we can easily look at somebody else and say, hey, your sin is so much worse than mine because we can see it. And I've learned one thing as a pastor, as a leader of the cause of Christ. Um, people are really good at hiding their sins. There are so many Christian leaders, and it's just sad, that have fallen away from the faith. And uh, I was talking to Diane about this last night. It, it just unreal the amount of people that have um, hidden sin and then come out and it's like, oh, their life is falling apart. And so just realize that we're not better than somebody else because we don't struggle with maybe with the same thing. And so realize personal sin. Second, th second thing is this, see a person and not a position or a politic. Uh, you're talking to a real soul. And so we got to care about people's souls more than we care about their sin. It's really easy to look out and say, well, I can't believe that. Or, man, look at that agenda they're pushing. Or, man, that's so crazy. And we're just, we could be very judgmental with a group of people or type of people. But we got to see past the sin and see the soul. We got to see who they are and that they're one of God's children, that God loves them. And so we treat them personally and care about them. Um, I'd say personally minister to them. This is going to sound kind of weird, but um, be more of a priest and less of a preacher. Um, be more of a priest. Uh, what's a priest? Somebody who cares for somebody. Um, it's not the guy that gets on stage and says, here's the truth, and then walks away. It's the kind of person that gets down in the mud and gets in their life and, and serves with them and cares for them, even if they're not even a Christian. 
and just being a priest, this kind of lifestyle evangelism or just truly caring for somebody's soul, even if they have nothing to offer in return, instead of preaching the truth at them. Um, we know one thing for sure as Christians that preaching the truth without a relationship, it just doesn't work out. Like you're not, that's, it's like getting on social media and just lame blasting a, a group of people. And so be a priest to them. Fourth thing is build a personal redemptive relationship. Um, be their form. They're, they struggle the same pains like everybody else does. And when life hurts and things don't make sense, you'll be there to answer their questions and point them to Jesus. And then as God leads, have heartfelt personal truth conversations. Like don't be afraid to bring up the truth. Don't be afraid to share like, hey, man, I love you. I just want to challenge you, maybe think about this. Uh, you don't have to come across rude or mean, but when you truly care about somebody, you're going to find a way to, to bring up those hard conversations. And it would be any other, just like any other sin or anything that somebody would struggle with. Um, so Romans 12, 21 says this, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Um, two wrongs don't make a right. So um, it's... You know, we have people that come to our church that um, are trans. We have people that have come to our youth group that are trans. We have people that are struggling in every area. And, um, you know, we care about them. We want them to know Jesus. And so we tell people all the time that we'll give God as much time to fix your life as Satan did screwing it up. And uh, we mean that. We want to be there for people and, and help them on their journey. So um, care about souls more than sin. There you go. Man, what a post. Um, good job, babe. High five. Number. So this is another question you guys had in kind of this leadership area. A lifestyle. So does God really see all sins as equal? And if so, should we? And if so, then why should some leaders be kicked out when they've had, quote unquote, bigger sins? So this is kind of one to kind of unpack. So does God see all sin equally? And if so, then why do we have our favorites? Or why do we pick out favorites to maybe condemn people or take them out of leadership? So I'll say, I'll start with this. So God sees all sin equally in that all sin leads to death. So all sin's consequence is death. Romans 6.23 says the wage of sin is death. Uh, Romans 5.12 says, therefore, just as one man sin entered the world, this is Adam, death through sin came. In the same way, death came to all people because all have sinned. And so from, a, from God's perspective, there is no innocent person. Uh, all sin leads to death. But I will say on the other side of the coin, not all sin is equal in consequences. Uh, just like you don't give your kids the same consequences for their actions. You don't spank your kid every time they do something wrong or whatever your consequence is. Every, the, what happens in return is, is kind of level of which the consequence is at. So um, why are some sins bigger than others? Um, I would say that sins aren't necessarily bigger than others, but it depends on your, it's more of a question of leadership than a question about sin. Um, it's not the sins as much as the position you are kind of in the leadership or like your reputation for the cause of Christ. Uh, your position maybe determines your consequences. Think about this. So Miley, Miley Cyrus, okay, she came out, I don't know, a couple of years ago, whatever it's been. Somebody else is going to correct me on this, but says she's pansexual. And the reality is as a, church, as a pastor, as a church leader, as a Christian, you're like, who cares? You know, she has zero leadership zero push for the cause of Christ. Now, if a pastor came out and said they're pansexual, um, then they're gonna have a big problem. And so the way it kind of works is there's biblical mandates and then there's maybe the authority you're under. So kind of different cases to think through. So biblical mandates as a leadership, First Timothy 5 says, the elders who direct the affairs of the church 
uh, well are worthy of double honor, especially those who work in preaching and teaching. So you like you get twice the reward and twice the position of honor. But on the other side of the coin, James three says, "Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that he who teaches will be judged more strictly." So you get double honor, but you also get double judgment. You're more accountable because you're in a position of leadership. First uh, Timothy walks through the really the leadership um, criteria. Um, for what it is to be an overseer, a pastor, a deacon. And so Timothy lists out, he says an overseer should be above reproach, should be faithful with his wife, should be temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Uh, he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. He must also be in the same manner the worthy of full respect. Um, if one doesn't manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert. He may become not conceited, uh, fall into the same judgment as the devil. He must have a good reputation with outsiders and so not fall into disgrace in the devil's trap. And so Timothy basically is laying out like, hey, when you're in leadership, when you step up as a pastor, especially an overseer, a bishop, um, there's certain criteria you have to follow. And he, he mentioned, hey, you can't have adultery. You can't be a sexual sin. You can't have major family issues. You can't be a drunkard. You can't be greedy. You can't be one of those guys that like solves all your problems with a fist fight. Now that'd be a really fun church to go to for one Sunday. <laughs> UFC pastor. Um, yeah, argumentative. You just always, you have to be right. You got to fight everybody. I mean, hospitable. I mean, to be a pastor, you, you can't just not like people, right? Um, that'd be kind of a bad deal. Um, you can't have a bad reputation in the community. So if any of those things were to happen when you're like in leadership, uh, biblically, those sins per se, if you want to call them bigger sins, but the qualifications for a pastor, you'd say, hey, you know what? These things are hurting the cause of Christ more than helping them. So you should be taken out of leadership. Uh, a second thing is authority you're under. So if you're in an authority, maybe you, you serve at a job or work at a job or you um, serve as a pastor at a church or whatever, there may be an authority over you and authority may say, hey, uh, we ask our church, you don't drink. Now, that's not our position, but there's churches and pastors in that position, um, and you should respect that. If an authority says, hey, you know what, there's some certain types of posts you shouldn't post. I know Dines work. Um, well, even my dad's a union electrician, and they don't want them taking pictures of the, the airport and posting all the problems they're having. Um, lifestyle commitments. You've signed maybe some covenants uh, or maybe just an attitude, insubordination, laziness, all these things could move you with leadership. So I, I think that there's – we have a tendency to say those some sins are bigger because we can see them, but in leadership, I think it really comes down to a biblical mandate and then the authority you're under. So, all right, next question. Get any more questions coming up? Nope. I'm boring you guys to tears. You guys love it. All right. So the Bible promises that if we raise a child, the way you should not get or way you should go, not leave from it. So how do we keep guiding our now grown children to fully trust Christ? So the the scripture this person's referencing is Proverbs twenty two six. Uh, it says, train up a child in the way you should go, and when you're old, do not depart from it. So Proverbs, uh, I would just say, is a book of wisdom. It's not a book of absolutes. So it's predictable, but not prescriptive. And so it's saying probable, the most likely outcome if you do these things is this. That's why it makes it wisdom, but it's not prescriptive, as if if you do these things, then this will absolutely happen. And so I would say when you're raising kids and they move out, which we've had that with us, um, it's definitely more spiritual than you think. Um, praying for your kids is super important, especially for aligning your heart through all those difficult situations. You guys as parents are the closest uh, really to the fire. And so all maybe the 
the heartbreak or maybe the decisions that are being made. And so just keeping your heart right, being a champion for your kid and, and let them know you love them and just consistently praying for them. You might, be the, you might be the only person realistically praying for them. And so that would be the big thing. Second thing is keep the door open for communication. Um, I don't know. I see so many parents make the mistake of cutting their kids out of their lives when they don't agree with them. Um, I just had this happen recently uh, with somebody that I'm really close to, and it's just the wrong move. Um, you should always leave the door open. You can always you can disagree and still love people. You can say, "Hey, I I love you. I I just don't can't get behind what you're doing, but I'm here for you and care about you." You, you don't have to cut that door out, and I see it happen so often. Um, I would say too, a big habit when they leave home is hunt them down. <laughs> Come on, we've been there, right? In our 20s, we're like, we're trying to make a name for ourselves. We're trying to get out there and conquer the world. We're busy with our own friendships. And as a parent, you know, you feel like you just kind of got upended and they're not calling you back and they're da da da. Just hunt them down. That's the season they're in. When they have their own kids, they'll call you up and say, thank you. I was a big beep. <laughs> All right, maybe that didn't happen, but it happened for me. Uh, become a cheerleader. Donnie's trying to hold it together. Uh, be a cheerleader and a coach more than ever you're in a season where you've kind of moved out of that parental authority into more of a, a mentor and a, and a really good friend. And so ask really great questions, even though you probably know the answer, ask a good questions and just listen. And the goal should always be that they want to come back home because you simply love them more, more or better than anybody else in their life. And so that'd be kind of my principles that guide you. Um, you know, the Proverbs, there's a lot of, you can do all the right things as a parent. Your, your kid makes his own choices, you know? Um, but that's not the case. Most of the time it, it works out and they, they, they're, they're picking up more than you think. So, uh, for question four, um, how would you answer a person who says the 10 commandments are a great way to live, but I don't need God. All right. So if somebody's like, Hey, I'm spiritual. Um, I, I don't really need Jesus. You know, this question is kind of interesting because somebody actually asked me, Hey, I, I follow the 10 commandments, but I don't need God. It'd be a really weird question. Now, if I was close to this person, because it depends on the relationship, assume you're close to this person and it really did say, Hey, I'm, I'm cool following the 10 commandments, but I don't need Jesus. I don't need God. I would just ask him, Hey, um, why do you think that law was created? Um, those 10 commandments are actually created that you recognize your need for God. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you, what do you, have you broken the 10 commandments? Um, have you ever looked less at a woman? This is the Kirk Cameron speech, right? Have you ever told a lie? Uh, and Jesus came to fulfill those 10 commandments. So when you're saying you need to follow the Ten Commandments and that's good enough for you, you've almost missed the entire point of why they're written. And so Romans 5.20 says the law was brought in so that the trespasses might increase. Uh, but where sin increased, grace increased the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness, bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so that, that law was created to show your need for sin. But in general, if somebody said, hey, I don't need God, I've got, I've got the Bible, I, I'm spiritual enough, um, that's going to come down just to um, building a personal redemptive relationship with them and just hanging out with them on, on their terms and uh, meeting them where they're at and let them see your life. And when something goes sideways in theirs, they'll say, man, there's just something different about that person. I, I, what is it? What is it about you? And so that's where you just got to have a personal relationship with them. Uh, five, how should we respond to someone that says they believe in Jesus, but they don't need to go to church because they are a good person and can stay on the right path by themselves. Dude, I love this question. Cause I see this all the time as a pastor, like, oh, I'd love to go to church, but I, I've got God on my own. I've got it figured out. And um, 
I debated whether to say this line or not, but <laughs> I'm just going to say, man, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I um, mean, I think we've all been there. You can quote that one in the comments. Yeah, you can quote that. That's good. Um, but I, we, we, like, we want to do that because like, it takes time and energy and accountability. There's a lot of reasons we don't want to go to church. And usually it's a wound. And so it's like they, they, they want to be around the people of God, but they got hurt by the people of God. And so they just want to follow God. And so I just ask him, like, why, why do they believe that? Like, why, why don't you want to go to church? And you're going to find there is a past wound. There is probably a forced religion. There is a person, maybe a pastor they put on a pedestal that let them down. There was a church leader. Their, their parents may have been heavily involved in church. Maybe they were Christian leaders or pastors, and they've seen the other side, quote unquote. Um, so, or maybe they just don't want to make time to come because they're so busy with something else. Um, but in essence, what they're saying is church isn't, um, church isn't for me. Um, and oftentimes we think like, well, I don't have time for Sundays, but the reality is the church isn't a place. The church is a people. And so what they're saying is, I don't want to be around, I, I want to be around God. I just don't want to be around the people of God, <laughs> which is really kind of a terrible spot to be in life. Because I think Satan makes us think that we can do this on our own. So I would really kind of get to the point where you could ask them the question, man, how serious are you really about following God? I mean, how serious would you be about climbing Mount Everest if you told me you're going to do it all by yourself? Like you had no team, you had no training, you had no coach, you didn't need a Sherpa, you had no experience in the past of really being good at climbing, you have no accountability, you're in isolation, and you're just going to willpower your way to the summit of Everest. Like that's almost how silly that question is to me after 15 years of being a full-time ministry. Um, just, just maybe this question, encouraging them to follow Jesus is less about them and more about helping others. You know, the gospel is a circle. And so it's like you meet Jesus, you, you li start living like Jesus and you start leading like Jesus and it's leading other people and they follow the same discipleship path, right? And so I would encourage somebody who says, hey, I'm super spiritual. I'd say, well, you should definitely be a leader for the cause of Christ because Jesus isn't looking for you. Uh, he left the 99 and went to the one. And so James 5, 16 says, we confess our sins to one another for healing. And so when you're not pouring yourself out, you're, you're a sponge and you're just soaking this in and becoming stagnant instead of taking your sponge and pouring it out on somebody else and really growing somebody. And so... I don't know, many ways you say, I've got this whole God thing by myself. I've got it covered. I'm super spiritual. I've told this, I say this in our crash course all the time. It's really the most selfish act you could ever do as a Christian is to live for Christ by yourself. You never find that in the Bible. What are you he's laughing at? He says, Sean, you're my Sherpa. You're my Sherpa. <laughs> Dude, trust me, you're going to want bottled oxygen. I'm going to tell you that. <laughs> you picked the wrong Sherpa, bro. <laughs> Oh, man, I get altitude sickness. You don't want me to go with you. Um, but I would say this. When you say, hey, I got this Christian thing by myself, what your essence, what you're saying is, and this is so sad, the gospel is stopping with me. Like when you, when you, when you follow Jesus by yourself, that is the practical conclusion of that attitude. I'll just tell you the self-made man does not exist in the Christian walk. The podcast Christian has the knowledge without the experience or the wisdom of others. That's what makes it dangerous. Now, I'm all for listening to podcasts. I love Craig Rochelle. I love Andy Stanley. Man, I, I listen to Louis Giglio. I mean, I, I'm a guru of podcasts and leadership and conferences, but at the end of the day, it's the people right next to me 
that really help me the most and keep me accountable and push me. Uh, the Lone Ranger idea of a Christianity is saying like, I need God, but I don't need accountability. I don't want to be challenged. I'm happy where I'm at. And so the ultimate question I would be thinking for that person is, man, who hurt you? Who hurt you? And as crash course and people come on our team, um, 90% of people that jump on the team have been hurt by somebody else in the past. They've had a bad experience with church. And so this is an opportunity. And I tell them all the time to be a leader to somebody else and oftentimes yourself and to be around people. We're not going to put people on pedestals, including me. Um, but people help us to follow and find Jesus. And so we're going to get in relationships. So that was our life talk question. So sin and salvation. So we had questions on like, uh, if Jesus died for your sins, then why can God send you to hell for them? Man, this person came out swinging. So uh, I would say that Jesus is on a rescue mission for you. And that question is fundamentally flawed that Jesus, it's almost like saying Jesus wants to send you to hell. And that's just not reality. As a matter of fact, God um, did not create hell because he wanted to send people there, but there's a consequence for our sin. And so he wants a relationship with us. Second Peter 3, 9 says the Lord's slow concerning, is not slow concerning his promises. Uh, some regard slowness, but is being very patient towards us because he does not wish for any of us to perish, but all come to repentance. I mean, the only reason that we are still here and God has not just taken all of us out is because he wants to know us. And so I'll just kind of walk you through the gospel that God created us to be with him. Um, and that when he created us, he gave us something called a free will. And that free will gives us the ability to make a choice because God wants us to love him. But for love to happen, it requires a choice. We can't be robots for Jesus. We would just be, wouldn't be love. It would just be obedience. And so God created us to be with him and we made a choice. And that choice was to sin. And that sin separates from God. You see it in Genesis chapter three. And that sin is real serious. Uh, God is completely holy. He's righteous. He's perfect. He's never sinned. He doesn't know sin. And so when we sinned, we were separated from God. And that sin that Adam and Eve had is like poison that would basically. Uh, that would poison all of that water. And, and that's what happened when Adam and Eve sinned that poisoned all of humanity. And so sins can't be removed by good deeds. As much as we try, we can cover up if this is this is our sin and we can say, well, I read my Bible. I pray. I go to church. I grew up in church. Uh, I preached one Sunday. Um, but the reality is our sin is still in our hands. So we have, we have a sin issue that God has to deal with a lot of ways. Like not, we try to cover our sin with like take a burnt cake and put icing on it. It's like, look how good I am. Even though faith it's not from yourselves it's a gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. It's, it's a gift. And so God is looking for your faith. He wants to see that you're trusting in him. And so the Bible says clearly in Romans that whoever confesses their mouth and believes in heart that God raised them dead, you will be saved. And so I'll just start with that premise that, that Jesus isn't condemning people to hell, that he wants everybody to know him. But the reality is um, people will not. And so I'd say the only sin that actually sends someone to hell is the sin of apostasy. Um, it's basically the sin of unbelief. Ultimately, the question is going to be asked, what did you do with Jesus? Did you believe in Jesus? If you were standing at the gates of heaven and God or Peter, whoever would ask you, why should I let you in? What would your answer be? And if the answer is anything but, hey, I believe Jesus died across my sins, then you need to take another look at your faith and where it's at. Because the Bible says there's only one name under heaven where men shall be saved. There's only one meter between the man and God, the man Christ Jesus. And so... 
Um, I don't see God as a, a vindictive God, an evil God, a punishing God. I see him as a loving God that wants a relationship with us, and he's made it really, really clear for us to go there um, and have that relationship. Seven, if a person of another faith, so a Buddhist, somebody who's Islamic, believed in Jesus, would they go to heaven? Um, so I'll just give a quick answer. The answer is yes. Um, going to heaven is not about lifestyle, but about relationship with Jesus. I think about the thief on the cross in Luke 23. Um, this thief leans over and he says, Jesus, remember me when you came in, when I come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered in this very moment on the cross. He said, truly, I tell you today, you'll be with me in paradise. Man, I love this because this thief on the cross, um, he probably never went to the synagogue or if he was a New Testament believer, right? He never, he never went to church. He probably didn't grow up in a family that prayed. He's probably never prayed. He's probably stolen at minimum. He's most likely a murderer or a really um, renowned thief. To be crucified, you had to be the worst of the worst of the worst and be like a public humiliation to be crucified. And Jesus had no criteria for him besides do you believe in me? And so when you die, I'll see you in paradise. And so really that's the only criteria to go to heaven is if you know Jesus. And oftentimes you want to look out and say, well, it didn't look like you knew Jesus. It's like, well, we're not the Holy Spirit, you know, but it's what do you do with Jesus? Um, this is a really good question. How do I know God forgives all my sins? Oh man. So this, this, this is, I wish I um, could talk to you wrote this because this is, can be kind of deep. But when Jesus died on the cross, he died for all of our sins, past, present, and future. First uh, John 2.2, 2, it says Jesus didn't die just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And that world there is the word cosmos, which means the world. And when Jesus, like John 3.16 is written by the same John, uh, for God so loved the cosmos. And so what he's actually saying is Jesus was our, and he has this really big Bible term, um, propitiation. And it's really translated wrath-bearing sacrifice. So when Jesus went to the cross, he literally paid all of our debt. And when he paid it, it means like he paid with his own blood. Like he was the sacrifice for our sins. In the Old Testament, you used to have to go to the temple and you'd have to kill an animal and the animal's blood would be spread on the altar and that would cover your sin for a year. In the New Testament, Jesus is the perfect lamb, the son of God, and he is an eternal sacrifice. Like, there's no more sacrifices because Jesus' blood covered all of our sins. And so the, the Old Testament Psalm says, your, far as the sins, your sins are far as the east is from the west. The Bible says that um, God's love covers a multitude of sins. When Jesus is on the cross, I should have looked this verse up, but it says your sins are nailed to the cross. And so Jesus knew everything that we were going to do. And he took every one of our wrongs, past, present, and future, and literally put them on Jesus. And so Romans 4 is probably the greatest um, place to look for all your sins being forgiven. Uh, Romans 4 is all about Abraham being justified. And so what you have here is Abraham was made right with God or justified because of faith. And so we are justified because of our faith. And what's this word justified? Judicial, judicial term. Like if you're on death row, row and you're getting sentenced and a judge is about to slam the gavel down and say, you're going to go to the electric chair. Um, Jesus steps up and says, no, 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 no. Here, here is my life. I'm exchanging myself. Put me in the electric chair for them. And he, he took all of our payment. And so we were made right with God. And so we don't have to worry about did Jesus, did God just cover my easy sins or what about my
No, no, no. Jesus died for every single one of them. And when you trust in him, you are a new creation. So, okay, I was preaching the message there. That was fun. Um, all right. Another good question. How do you know you're really saved? How, how do you know you're, you're really Christian? How do I know I'm a, as a Christian? How do I know I'm going to heaven when I die? Um, maybe you're doubting salvation. Uh, this is going to be super hard um, to deal with because you're like, maybe you think you're saved by grace and kept by works. And so maybe you have this, man, I made a mistake. With your salvation, number one, do you trust in Jesus? Um, Acts 4.12 says salvation is found in no other name. For there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Um, there should be a moment in time. I love walking through people with this. But there should be a moment in time where you made that decision to follow Jesus. Um, people say all the time while I grew up. Now, I can remember when I was 15 years old, I can go back and draw a circle around the area at a church where I literally kneeled down and I prayed to receive Jesus. Now, everybody's got a different story. I've got a good friend of mine who um, his circle will be over a toilet, <laughs> what he was working on, but he needed Jesus. Um, so can you go back to that moment in time and say, hey, you know what, that, that, I'm for sure I know Jesus. And so do you trust in Jesus? We talked about earlier, stand at the gates of heaven, watch, let you in. Um, second thing is this, are you be, are, are you being obedient to God? Um, you know, how do you know you're a Christian? Um, Bible says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you keep my commandments. And so when you're like, man, I want to follow God, there's this desire, there's these habits that are being changed. There's just dreams in your life that are different. There's desires that are being shaped. There's some pleasures that have gone and some pleasures that have came. Um, you're just what they're doing. Um, because they've made some large changes you don't know about. Um, so and if you're not obedient to God, the Bible says he loves, he chastens, like he disciplines. And so probably the most miserable place to be on earth is somebody that knows Jesus but is living outside God's will because God is just going to keep working on you to get your attention. Uh, and the last thing I'd say, how do you know you're a Christian, is the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in your life. Uh, the Bible says in Ephesians 1:14 that you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Like literally the Holy Spirit comes inside of you and dwells you. It lives in you. It's, it's like a roommate. They moved in. <laughs> all right. They took up residence in your life. And the Holy Spirit is very real. It's your spirit. He prompts you. Uh, you can move by the Spirit, filled by the Spirit. He draws close to you. He leads you. And so I would encourage you, you know that you have the presence of God in your life. There's a peace that really doesn't come from anywhere in the world. I was reading some stuff. Um, obviously, you guys would know what's going on with Afghanistan, and I mean, absolutely tragic. And there is a friend of mine. He's, he's a pastor in Ohio, and he posted about some people that are missionaries there that were literally on Facebook Live with their kids that live stateside and said, "Hey, we're totally at peace, but you know, we're not going to make it through the night. Um, they're in Kabul, and but they have peace from God, you know. And that only comes from God. That's just such craziness. But God's presence is in our life." And so never doubt the Holy Spirit. And, you know, you can tell when somebody's really walking with the Spirit and listening. And that's, that is definitely a spiritual discipline. You know, you can't just magically turn that on. You've got to really seek after God. Um, Ten, if a person becomes a Christian and then walks away from their faith, will they still go to heaven? 
or were they really a Christian to begin with? So I'm going to pair this with another question. Um, if once you're saved, you're always saved, then are you still saved if you stop having a relationship with God? So kind of two questions in one. If you're a Christian and walk away, do you still go to heaven? Or were you really a Christian? And if you're once saved, always saved, but stop, can you stop having a relationship with Jesus? Um, so let me just put this together. So I think we all got have friends or Christian. I don't know. I was, I've had a good staff friend of mine that's walked away from God um, in prior church experiences. I've had Christian leaders that have looked on from a distance. Um, I think all of somebody in our life that would have fit in these categories. And so what I'm going to do is just kind of answer this in two ways. One is if you were a Christian, there's no doubt that you were always going to be a Christian. Now we don't know for sure because not the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit has justified them. So they've made them right. They've sealed them. That Holy Spirit that comes inside of them. The idea of being sealed is like an old Testament, you know, like a, a king would have a signet ring and put in the wax and only the person that, had the authority to open it, could open it. That's what the spirit is to us. We just read the verse Ephesians 1 14. They were sealed the Holy Spirit of promise. And so when the Holy Spirit indwells us, that that's our seal that we will be sanctified, justified, and then one day glorified. We go to heaven and Jesus is the only person that can open that seal. And so if they knew Jesus, um, they were a new creation. And so yes, no matter what they did, I would just say they're backslidden. They would, they would know God. But again, we're not the Holy Spirit, so we don't know what they really believe. And so there's actually a person in the Bible that fits this category really well. And you may have heard of him. I don't know if you have or not. His name is Demas. And so he's one of Paul's fellow workers in the gospel. You find him in Mark, Luke, Philemon. Um, is Paul, Paul's first imprisonment. So I just looked this up through gotquestions.org. So if you go to gotquestions.org, it's going to have a lot of... Um, it's, you know, a lot of great answers to common questions in the Bible. And so I, I thought their answer was really good. So this is kind of what it says. Um, Demas walked with Paul, um, was with him on his second imprisonment in Rome. Um, and then Paul, he, he abandoned Paul's ministry, left town. And so Paul wrote in 2 Timothy, he said, Demas, because your love for this world has deserted me as gone to Thessalonica. And so this idea that Demas really didn't just leave Paul, but left him kind of in a really bad spot and abandoned him. Uh, Paul was definitely let down. He was hurt and uh, lost his trust in the midst of the hardship. And so the separation caused Demas desertion of Paul was not just even spatial, but almost spiritual for Paul. And so when Demas left for Rome, um, Paul thinks because he fell in love with the world. And so basically Paul's saying, hey, this guy chose the corrupt value system of the world over what heaven has to offer. And so... Uh, he's saying he loved the things of the world. And so we don't know the details of the situation, but it's pretty evident that he had a close friend, follower of Christ, a leader in the church, and literally just left. And we've been there, and we've been in those situations. And so uh, much can be said about what we think about Demas. Was he a Christian, or is he backslidden? Um, and so the if he fell in love with the world, and that's what Paul's saying, there's an argument to say that he really never was a Christian to begin with. And it was saying in 1 John 2.15, says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Um, you don't really find the restoration of Demas anywhere in the Bible. And so we don't really know for sure what happened to him. But oftentimes you'll see this like Matthew 13, um, the deceitfulness of wealth um, will choke out the word and make it unfruitful. I've seen a lot of leaders, uh, big leaders to the cause of Christ that start falling in love with their money and um, stop doing what they're called to do 
and you can wonder like were they really christian or not but you know once you're born again you can never be not born again you don't get the choice of having like your like <laughs> i don't get to pick my mom or unpick my mom you know <laughs> and the bible says you're you're born again so it really comes down to two things uh one were they a christian to begin with and two were they backslidden and that's really between um them and god and it's a lot of speculation at that point um yeah people a lot these are great questions we'll answer next week but will god review all your wrongs when you die as a believer uh what does the bible say what happens to children or babies who die before grasping the age of of well let's say the concept of sin i would say the age of accountability uh how can a believer comfort someone grieving the loss of someone close to them but far from god uh so somebody's maybe not spent eternity in heaven so those are really hard questions and i'm going to answer those in this next sunday's message so baptism we have baptism coming up yeah we do dude i'm excited about dine's alive she I mean, said something I'm saying lots of things just writing That's you're, what I do. you're doing great things babe great things um but ba- we have baptisms coming up on the 26th it's our fourth fourth birthday and so we had a lot of questions coming on this and so i'm going to try to walk through this i've kind of partnered the questions together um somebody wrote how many times should a person be baptized and who should be baptized and why and then I'll partner with this question. Some say you can only be baptized once. Is that true? If so, should you wait until you fully understand and appreciate it or as parents do it when the child is a baby? So I'll just kind of start out, just kind of get highlight on some things. Baptism is not a requirement for salvation. So you do not have to be baptized any way, shape, or form. You're, you're no brownie points or grace with God by going through confirmation or being baptized, you get nothing special spiritual out of that. So you don't feel like you have to baptize your kids or an infant to earn salvation. I know a lot of us grew up in that culture. Um, here's what baptism is. is It's a picture. Romans 6 says this. Uh, Romans 6, 3 and 4 says, Or do you not know that all of us who are baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And so baptism is a picture, when you get baptized, of the death, burial, and a resurrection of Jesus. And so when you go in the water, it's a picture of his death. When you come out of the water, it's a picture of his resurrection. A lot of people say um, you're, you're baptized into his death and baptized into new life. And so it's really just that. It's an outward symbol of an inward change of what God did inside of you. And so anyone who's committed their life to Jesus should get baptized. Um, I think, really, the Bible says that's the only criteria or qualification to baptism. Um, that's the order of which is done in the Bible, is you, you've started a relationship with Jesus, you've committed your life to Jesus, you believe God across your sins, and then you should get baptized. So nowhere in the Bible do you find infant baptism. It's not found in the Bible. It's not found anywhere. Um, and so that's just a, a tradition that's been given by the church, but it's really not the picture of what baptism is because baptism represents what Jesus did inside of you. And so you can't really celebrate that unless that work has been done in your life. Um, yeah. I want you to really get baptized before committing your life to Jesus. Somebody asked a question, how many times? Um, this is kind of tricky because ideally once. <laughs> Uh, you want to get baptized after you start a relationship with Jesus, but for some of you, you might get baptized more than once because you may get baptized when you were a kid, but that baptism didn't represent um, your walk with Jesus. That wasn't a picture of what God did in your life. You weren't really celebrating 
or doing that for that reason. And so I'll give you some verses that shows this, but Acts 2.41 says this. This is Peter. He's preaching, okay? Just Jesus ascended to heaven, and Peter preaches. It's Pentecost. You know, thousands of people come to Christ, and it says this. Those who accepted this message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to that, that number that day. So look at the order. Those who accepted the message, that they accepted Jesus, those who accepted the good news of the gospel were baptized. And so that's the order of baptism. There's an age where like somebody understands the gospel. And so that's why we always ask him, we're behind the scenes talking to him like, hey, have you accepted Jesus? What's your Jesus story? That's why I always share the Jesus story from the stage because it, that's the criteria to get baptized. You can find in Acts 8, 34 through 38. Uh, this is a eunuch um, who doesn't know God. He's got a piece of Old Testament Isaiah, and he runs into one of the disciples named Philip. And so he says, Philip, please tell me what this prophet's talking about. What's Isaiah talking about? I have no idea what this is. And Philip began to look through the passage of Scripture with him and told him about the good news of Jesus. And as they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, hey, look, here's some water. What can stand in the way of being baptized? Now the verse 37, which there's some debate if it's, was added or not, would say, what stops you from getting baptized? Oh, if you believe, then you can. Verse 38 says, and he gives orders to stop the chariot and both Philip and the eunuch go down into the water and Philip baptizes him. And so Philip shares Jesus with the eunuch, eunuch believes in Jesus, and then he's baptized. That's the order of baptism. And so can you get baptized more than once? I'd say yes, because you may have done out of order, uh, but you do not need to get baptized because like you started sinning and you need to get your life cleaned up. Now, I'm not going to split hairs if somebody is just adamantly thinking that they, you know, situationally didn't do it for the right reasons. Okay, you know, there's no crazy super spiritual moment like where the Holy Spirit's saving you or something. Uh, but it's more for you. It's really you proclaiming to the world that you're unashamed of Jesus. So somebody said, when being, when being baptized, I've heard that you can do it incorrectly and it doesn't hold as much meaning or power. Okay, so that... I'm assuming comes down to different modes of baptism. So you can get ba you can get baptized by sprinkling, get baptized by pouring, and what we believe the Bible says is dipping, or if you want to use the immersion, which I don't necessarily like because it means to go down and not come back up. So, you know, you just hold it down there for a long time. Now, some people hold down a little longer because they really need to get spiritual. Um, or as a joke. Um, but uh, basically, sprinkling, pouring, and dipping are kind of three methods of the church. And so what we do as a church is we model from Jesus how he was baptized. So Matthew 3.16 says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. So he actually came out of the water. So he was down in a river, the Jordan River, and came out of the water. So we don't, that's why we don't practice sprinkling or pouring. And so the Bible says at that moment, heaven's open, saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, alighting on him. Acts 8.38, we kind of mentioned a minute ago. But um, this eunuch went down to the water, so they stopped the chariots that both Philip and eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized them. So literally he went down into the water. And so this is the, really the kind of the few mentions in the Bible of the mode of baptism. Now I'm not going to split hairs. Like if you brought somebody who was like unable to get into a baptistry and somebody poured water on him, um, I'm not going to lose my mind, you know. I don't think that's, I don't think the mode is really the, the purpose of baptism, but I do think we want to try to be as close to what the, the Bible is as possible if you get the option. Um, but nowhere in the Bible do you find sprinkling or especially like infants or people who have made a decision for Christ. Uh, let's see. Some other question on baptism. How do you know, how do I know I'm ready to be baptized? And kind of part, part of the question, should you be hundred percent clear in your faith before you're being baptized? 
is it okay to do it if you're still on a belief journey and about 80% the way to full belief? Okay, so how do you know you're ready to get baptized? And if you're not 100% all in, should you do it? Um, I would say to start out, if you committed your life to Jesus, then you're qualified to be baptized. If you have a relationship with Jesus, if, if I said, um, if you were to put your head on the pillow tonight and potentially you didn't wake up, you know, what would make you sure that when you die, you go to heaven? And you said, hey, I believe in Jesus. I'd say you're qualified to get baptized. Uh, if you stand at the gates of heaven and say, why should I let you in? You said, okay, well, I'm a really good person and I believe uh, I do a lot of good stuff. I'd say, okay, you're not qualified to get baptized because you, you're not, you don't know Jesus. And so, but if you have faith in Jesus and maybe it's just not great faith, I'd say get baptized because it's the first step of obedience. So how do you know you're ready? Uh, I would say when the weight of what Jesus did for you drives you to surrender. <laughs> like if you really see what Jesus did for you on the cross, that unending grace, that unsearchable love, that forgiveness that comes from God, you really have no response to, okay, God, I'm going to follow you. And so he makes it really clear in the Bible that we should be baptized. And so I'd ask you, like, what's holding you back? Um, what Maybe there's a sin or like there's something in your life that you feel like isn't good enough for God. You don't feel like your life is clean enough. You don't feel like you're good enough. Maybe I think so many of us were afraid of what people may think. I know as a teenagers that get baptized, and you, like maybe your parents all aren't, aren't on board. Uh, maybe your friends think you're kind of a fool. Um, as adults, it's kind of the same level, just maybe different people. Or maybe there's something in your life you feel like you got to fix or clean up in your past. And uh, can I just tell you that Jesus wants you to get baptized because he wants to know that you love him. It says in John 14, 15, if you love me, then keep my commandments. And so uh, I just think Jesus, when you think about his baptism, he, he didn't have to get baptized, obviously, but he was baptized to really set an example for us. And so in Matthew 28, 19, 28, 19, it says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so when you become a Christ follower, a Jesus follower, your first step of obedience to say, you know what, I'm all in for Jesus. I know Jesus is to go public with your faith. And going public with faith at that time and even today in the church is baptism. It is awkward on purpose. Nobody wants to get dipped in water in front of everybody. But Jesus says, hey, look, this is a symbol. This is a public profession of your faith. And so you go in front of the world, you go in front of your church, you're saying, hey, I'm unashamed. And so what would have to change for you to represent that? Um, Romans 1.16 says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because of the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. So what would have to change for you to be unashamed about the gospel? And I hope it's not something about cleaning your life up or some kind of disappointment. I would encourage you, if you know Jesus, then just take that step. And you'd be surprised what God will do through that. So hope that answers some of your questions on baptism. I know I went through that really quick. So if you have more questions on that, just uh, shout out. Uh, problem evil. So we're going to have a series on this, a message on this, why bad things happen to good people. There's a lot of questions on that. Um, yeah, this somebody asked this question. How do you explain free will and death of an amazing person in your life that, that had good in them? And so this is going to be a topic we'll dive into when we speak. So I'm going to kind of table that. All right. Somebody asked a question on God's will. Um, how can you tell... Funny, I'm zooming in. How can you tell if what you're doing is what God wants you to do and not just what I want? How can you be sure that you are following God's will? All right, this question is so relevant to all of our lives. Um, most life is found in the gray. There's not this uh, magical tablet, thou shalt this and thou shalt not that. 
Um, there's different will of God. Obviously, there's no will of God. You know, the Bible says this, not to do this. The Bible says to do that. The Bible says, you know, be. Should I open a business? Um, should I buy a sailboat? Um, you know, should I eat Taco Bell or Golden Corral, right? I mean, there's just some things like you're not going to get an answer on uh, from reading the Bible. You're going to have to listen to God and use some wisdom. So here's kind of help you think through this. So is this God's will? So think through these. I got, I got a couple questions here. What are your current circumstances? So is it God's will? So God, God is a God of wisdom. He's a God of order. He's not a God of chaos and uh, just blind faith. Like God uses the principles of money. Um, you know, so think about some questions. What are your Right. Um, I would encourage you to talk with two or other two or three other spiritual leaders in your life and they'll help you confirm that. They'll they'll say, hey, that's a great idea because they know you. Like if I gave you advice and didn't know your circumstance, I would not probably be helping you. But if you talk to somebody who knows your circumstances, they're going to give you better advice with that. And I would say there's a fine line between faith and uh, self-deception because <laughs> you can say, oh, God's in it. You know, God showed up to my financial meeting and, and told me to spend more money than we make. No, he didn't. That's just a Chipotle burrito, you know? Um, so, I mean, there's moments where God obviously is making something very Vapor and mist. Like, what is it all about? Does it fit into your legacy? Is it intentional? Is this sideways motion or is this the motion that brings you closer to a goal, to a dream, to a passion? Um, does this allow you to be debt free if you're trying to be debt free? Does it allow us to, to live on mission? Uh, me and Diane have a kind of a desire in our life to go on a mission trip every year as a family, especially when our, the kids have certain ages to go. Not that it matters for dying a whole lot sometimes. Uh, she went to Africa with Emory for a year. She's nine year old. But, um, but we go on a mission trip every year. And, um, that's just a desire in our heart. So when that door's open, we're like, hey, we're be with missionary this week to talk about that and see what they look like. Um, I ask the question, what could you do instead with that? You know, like maybe God says, uh, you're looking at, um, I don't know, maybe a car to buy. Like, okay, what could you do instead of buying a new car? What if you bought a used car? Could you take the extra money and make a bigger impact for the cause of Christ? Like what, look at your other options. You know, there's always three choices. And so if you have never done dynamic life retreat, I would encourage you to do that, you can just, um, if you send your email in on here, just post it or, um, or just DM like Diane or something okay, real life. or real life. That's even better. Uh, we'll send you this dynamic life retreat. It'll actually go through your current circumstances, greatest to the future, 
um, desired legacy, you actually write out your own obituary uh, or eulogy. It's kind of a sober, uh, sobering moment. And then um, you kind of look at it and say, hey, what, what am I trying to do with my life? So based on your current circumstances, future desires, is this a wise thing to do? So there's God's will in a nutshell. I probably give more questions and answers, but um, hopefully that speaks to you if you wrote that question. All right, this is a super heavy question. If you're truly forgive somebody for hurting you physically and emotionally, how do you move past the pain of bad memories and nightmares? Okay, so I would say thank you for the courage of asking this question. This is a real and honest heartfelt question that I think so many people struggle with but never talk about. This might be a question we just have to turn into a whole message, but I've got some thoughts on this. Um, I would say your forgiveness and healing are tightly woven together, and I'm glad to hear that you've forgiven this person and forgiven the circumstances and the things you've gone through, but obviously that pain and the shrapnel and the, the pieces are left on the ground and they're shattered. And so without knowing your story, um, I'll give you a few things I think may help you. One is you're not alone. Your story is more common than you know. It seems like there's not a week that goes by. I don't find out about somebody who's been sexually abused, somebody who's been beaten, somebody who's been in a marriage that's been abusive for maybe 30 years. Um, there's not a week that goes by where I'm, as a pastor, not seeing or personally working with somebody who is on the same story in the same pain as you're walking through. And it's obviously different for every person. And uh, this is not foreign to the Bible. David in the Psalms, I mean, he has anxiety. He can't sleep. He has all sorts of struggles. It's just real. And that's what I love about the Bible because it's for us and it's the real deal. And so I just encourage you that God has purposed your pain as much as that sounds kind of trite and whatever. But I think of like Joseph, somebody that like was sold into slavery, abandoned by his family, left for dead, um, overlooked, misunderstood. And God uses all of his pain to really form out of these ashes of his life, this incredible crown and this incredible story of healing and redemption. And we don't know why we're walking through this pain right now, but I would say God is preparing you for something great. Because every time you walk through something difficult, I always believe God is preparing you and God is seasoning you. And so some practical things I think will really help you in this season to move through this pain because you can't avoid it, obviously. But as you walk through this season, I believe you can find healing in godly relationships is probably the number one place you're going to find the healing you're looking for and to kind of move past the nightmares and all the, the anxiety and the fear and the reliving those moments is going to be found when you're at other people. And that's kind of what the Bible says, James 5, 16, we confess our sins to one another for healing. And so I'll make some really practical recommendations for you. And this is what I would tell my own kid or somebody I was right next to me. I'd tell them the same thing. We have a freedom group in our church. And it's all about moving past your past is like-minded people, people that are moving through their wounds. It's about identity. It's about forgiveness. It's about a new outlook. It's about um, having people in your life to understand where you're at and you're not alone struggling with this. And so I would recommend our fruiting group as a, as a first starting point. I don't think that's the ending point. I think for something you've been through, when you're saying you have night terrors or nightmares and stuff like that, I would recommend professional counseling. We are connected to uh, like this our counseling group is 
they're, um, they're Bible-based. They have degrees in the Bible. They've studied the Bible. They give information to the Bible, but they are also state certified. So it's kind of the best of both worlds. And so I call them more like pastoral counselors. They're not just uh, secular or, or just like newthetic or Bible-based. They're in the middle, and they do a great job. And uh, I couldn't think of any better, better to send somebody with. And there's a lot of counseling out there. I wouldn't recommend it if I didn't think it was the best. And so we, I'd love to help you. If you reach out, I don't know who wrote this question, if you're watching this or whatever, but if you need help or in a similar situation, let us know. Um, and we always do four for free. And uh, if you walk through something that's extremely heartbreaking and difficult, we will take care of you and go even the more and farther to help you. But I think professional counseling is great. There's a book I'd recommend called The Comeback by Louis Giglio. And he struggled with um, anxiety and fear and nightmares and all sorts of stuff. He was the lead pastor of a, of a mega church. And um, I just feel like one of the greatest spiritual leaders in our country. And he kind of chronologically goes through and lays out how he overcame that. A lot of counseling, um, different things, but he started quoting scripture back. And so I'd say, focus your thoughts on Christ. Um, it is spiritual. Uh, I knew a girl that was, um, I went to college with, she'd been raped, raped by her youth pastor. Believe that. And um, one of the most loving, grace-filled people I've ever met in my life because she had a brokenness that only somebody who walked through something with so much pain could ever understand. And she serves around the world to what I consider the least of these in the world every day, making an impact on so many lives. She has a smile on her face. She hugs these kids that pull because of the way they smell and everything about them. And she has a way of ministering to people because she's been hurt. And um, I'm not saying God intended that, but God uses it. To continue to lean into God and just find some healthy relationships that really know you. And you're going to get something from them and they're going to get something from you. And so you're going to be able, people are going to be, wow, if God can use you, he can use me. And you're going to say the same thing about them. And it's going to bring a lot of healing in your life. So I, I just want to encourage you um, with that. So. So I had a quick Bible question. Revelation wasn't mean for the 144,000 people saved, 12,000 for each tribe. What is this all about? This person's quoting Revelation 7.4. This is a pretty straightforward answer. Um, then I heard the number of those who were sealed was 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. So that's the verse this person's talking about. Uh, I would say depending on your approach to Revelation, which I take a futuristic approach, like Revelation hasn't happened yet. Obviously, it's written, it's written by John in the, in the 90s AD, um, but he's writing for future events that happen in the future. And so um, given that approach, these 104,000 are Jews, 12,000 are chosen from each tribe. When it says they're sealed, it means they're given God's protection to go out and evangelize during the end times. And so what happens in chronologically Bible, 1 Thessalonians 4, is the rapture and God calls up all the dead in Christ and all those who are still alive and remain into the air with him in the clouds. And that Latin phrase, it wins in Latin, is translated to rapture. And so all the Christians meet Jesus in the air, and then all of a sudden there's this tribulation period for seven years. And during that tribulation period, these 144,000 Jews are sent on mission to proclaim the gospel to the world in that moment in time. God never leaves people without a witness. That's why he gave us a Bible. He gave us Jesus. He gave them the prophets. And in the end times, he sends out these 144,000 Jews. Now, there's a false theory on this, like Jehovah Witnesses like to believe that there's only 144,000 people that reign with Jesus for eternity. 
And uh, that breaks a lot of major doctrine and teaching the Bible, but I've experienced this firsthand. I was in high school, Jehovah's Witness was, are you going to be one of the part of the 144,000? I'm like, man, you don't know what you're talking about, right? But Ephesians 4, 1.14, we talked about, you believed in Christ, and he sealed you the Holy Spirit of promise. And so, you know, there's a lot more than 144,000 people going to heaven. So hope that answers the question on that revelation question. All right, last set of questions, science and reason. What happened to dinosaurs, Diane? What happened to dinosaurs? Where is it? Where is Pachycephalosaurus today? Oh, Micropachycephalosaurus. Where is that dude at? It's a daily question when you have a four-year-old. This, when you have four-year-olds, this is exactly what it looks like. Um, so how can, how can you reconcile the creation timeline with science um, when what it says about humans and dinosaurs being millions of years apart? So I do love this question. It's actually a really deep question. Uh, if you have kids, you get, you get this question every day. I had this question last night, actually, from my kid. Um, so Bible timeline. Um, so if you take the Bible literally, um, which is how I approach the Bible, um, now there's times that's written in figurative language. Um, it's written outside of like what you'd say, just take it literally. Um, but there's nothing the Bible that suggests a separation of like millions of years between dinosaurs and existence of mankind. Like the Bible's taken literally, the earth is about 6,000 years old. And if you're looking at from a biblical standpoint of that literal earth, young earth, the dinosaurs would be created on the sixth day and mankind would have been created on the same day. So dinosaurs and us are the same age, which goes against like what we think everything science says. Uh, but the Bible supports that obviously there was some kind of large dinosaur creature around the time of Job and the early uh, patriarchs. So Isaiah 27.1, um, the Lavathon, first moving creature is cold up. It was huge. As mentioned, uh, Psalm 104, it's detailed out in Job 41, the behemoth. Um, and so basically, I mean, they've said, don't even go fight. The warriors were afraid of this dinosaur creature had scales, it was cold up. Some think it's a giant serpent. Um, some think it's a dragon, which is my ultimate favorite way of seeing it. Um, but so if you look at science in the timeline, like what, what supports like a young earth? Cause like you hear science all the time. Well, Radioactive Dave says it's, you know, 250 million years old. You have the, you know, crustacean period and Jurassic period and all these different periods of time. And so there's some evidence and I'll kind of point you in a direction and I'm not like a scientist. So, um, but I, but I've seen this, there's research on it. I'll give you a book here. I'll cite for you guys. But so radioactive dating is how scientists date the age of rocks. Okay. Now when you radioactive date, you can only date rocks that aren't like including like living objects or creatures. So you can't like carbon date or like radioactive date a fossil, but you can radioactive date like igneous rock created from magma. And so what happens is they're dating basically uranium that is basically turned into lead over time as it thro throws off and so decreases in the periodic table. And so what happens is they go out to different sites and they measure the reactive material and they say, Hey, this is how old it is. Now there's so much evidence out there for this method, not necessarily being accurate. So they go to Mount St. Helens and they radioactive date the lava that's formed two years prior. And it says it's, you know, 2.8 million years old. It's like, okay, obviously we've got a problem with that. And they did the same thing with Mount Etna. They said it erupted 25 million years ago. It erupted 2,100 years ago. Same thing, the sunset crater, um, Hallelujah, um, hallelujah, hallelujah, <laughs> Balsal, Hawaii, 200 years ago it erupted. They say it's two, 22 million years old. And so 
there's a lot of conspiracy and there's a lot of debate on the radioactive dating techniques. Um, one of the other arguments I thought was really unique is that as you look at uranium to lead, helium actually comes off of the, um, of the, of the atoms. And so what happens is there should be no helium as this process is measured millions of years later, but they still find helium in these rocks. And so like you start with uranium and you move down to lead at different points, there's helium released. And so if there is, if it'd been million years old, you wouldn't even find helium. And so there's guys have done decades of research to figure out if this is billions of years, or are we talking thousands of years? And there's a lot of evidence pointing for a young earth. One of the biggest things I saw that was just really unique is carbon dating. This is the part that's really fun. So when you carbon date something, it, that's where you carbon date like living organisms such as a dinosaur, petrified wood, you know, whatever um, living creature is there, which by the way, it's really cool. You can find like um, crustaceans and living things from the sea on top of every mountain in the world, like basically pointing towards a flood, which I think is really amazing. Um, but anyway, so C14 is a parent element and it, it comes down as it um, goes through its process into C12, leaving its daughter element. And so what's cool about this is when you carbon date, you can only carbon date back to 80,000 years. And so just because the half-life of, of the element itself only has half-life of 5,730 years. So when a scientist says that dinosaur is, you know, 20 million years old, they're not actually carbon dating the fossil. They don't take the actual this bone and carbon date it because it would actually never go back to millions of years. And so what they do is they take the rock that it was found in and they radioactive date that with that same process we talked about that may be flawed. And so, you know, there's a big rift between evolution and Christianity. And so I think a lot of the cards are kind of stacked against it in, in that world. Um, there's a book I will give you and, um, it's called Thousands, Not Billions uh, by Dr. Donald DeYoung, written in 2005. And they basically go through diamonds they've pulled up, bones of dinosaurs, fossilized wood. Um, they're running radioactive tests. They're running um, carbon dating tests on all these different things. And they're coming to the same conclusion that this is thousands of years old, not millions, hundreds of millions, or billion years old with multiple ice ages and yada, yada, yada. And I love science, and uh, it, it's there's a lot out there, um, but I would encourage you to check out that book. There's a lot of other um, science and studies on it. So um, thanks for hanging the day, guys. I know there's a lot of questions um, you guys went through. Man, we we uh, I think we answered every question in the world. Dying and posted dinosaurs, they're back. Um, but yeah, if you have any further questions, just reach out. I would encourage you guys to um, to keep searching out your faith and look at some of these resources. And I can't wait to connect to you guys next week um, and walk through some of these even hard, harder questions. So thanks for being here. Who's left in there? My five viewers, I love you all. Yes. You're amazing. So <laughs> anyway, see you guys next Sunday um, as we look through these questions. See you guys. This is the end of this podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, be sure to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss another inspirational podcast. For more great content and updates, visit reallifechurchkc.com.